uh, I thought I'd jump up before the Bible reading this week. We're looking at the book of Ezra. Uh, we're up to chapter 5 and 6 today. And I thought, oh, it's a bit of a strange spot to jump in cold. Uh, if you've missed the last few weeks or just joining us today or just can't remember last week, uh, I thought I'd help us get our bearings before the Bible reading because I thought that'd just be particularly helpful today. Um, the book of Ezra, it covers some of the last periods of history in the Old Testament. Uh, it's about the Israelites returning from ex- exile uh, back into their land. Uh, they'd been in Babylon in exile for about 50 years at this point, and uh, they'd been there basically because they had rejected God as their king. God had warned them time and time again, and eventually he hands them over to Babylon. Uh, Babylonians destroy the temple. Uh, that great sign of, uh, for Israel that God is with them and helping them. Uh, they destroy that, and they take uh, lots of them into exile. So Ezra is really the story of uh, the exiles returning, and a big part of that return is the project of rebuilding the temple. Uh, Last week, we looked at chapter 3. Jamie, as we finished up, got us to see how wonderful it was that the foundations of the temple were laid. It was a huge party. Uh, Things are looking good. Today, we're skipping over chapter 4, but there's something really important in chapter 4 I wanted to let you know about before chapter 5 to help us really uh, get the most out of it today. Here it is. It turns out the temple won't build itself. Uh, We've got a foundation, but then God's people really hit hurdles, uh, and it's really hard for them to get the task done. In chapter 4, we see that the people who live around Jerusalem are kind of hostile. Uh, They uh, threaten the temple builders. They try and make them scared and discourage them. Uh, And they go to the lengths of bribing government officials to frustrate the work of building. Uh, Nothing quite like corrupt government officials to stop good things happening. Uh, At the end of chapter 4, kind of the final verse before chapter 5, I think this is on the screen behind me, I'm not sure, but uh, chapter 4, verse 24, this is kind of setting the scene for us today. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, if you're like me and a bit fuzzy on the chronology of the kings of Persia, or just don't know anything about it more accurately, uh, that might not mean much. What does that mean? Well, it means this. The most important building in the universe was delayed by 16 years. Pretty normal length delay for a state building project, I guess. Uh, But that delay is the key background as we pick up chapter 5 today. And just very quickly as well, just to introduce or reintroduce uh, the kind of key character in Ezra up at this point, uh, Zerubbabel, or Zerubbabel. I've been practicing that all week and still don't really know what to say. Um, So Zerubbabel, is he's kind of the leader of God's people at this point uh, and kind of the main character, along with Joshua, the high priest. You'll see them as well. Um, I think we're now ready to read Ezra chapter 5. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shaltil, and Joshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shetha Bozanai and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorised you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also asked, What are the names of those who are constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and his written reply be received. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, 
and Shetha Bozanai and their associates, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. The report they sent him read as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorised you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? We also asked them their names so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor, and he told him, Take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. So this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it has been under construction, but is not yet finished. Now if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in this matter. Thanks so much, Helen. Uh, What a cliffhanger to leave us on. Does the building of uh, the temple of the living God have council building approval? Will the government have the right records on hand? Um, if any of us have had to deal with the Mitcham Council before, uh, we might not be very optimistic at this point. Um, but of course, a very warm welcome to you if you've joined us from the Mitcham Council this morning. Great to have you here. Uh, this does seem to be a story about bureaucracy, uh, which for some reason doesn't usually make it into the kids' Bibles. Um, If you missed uh, the sermon from Jamie last week, uh, it would be well worth getting online and catching up. Um, I know we say that pretty much every week, uh, but last week's sermon was such a helpful one. Really, please do get online uh, and listen to it if you missed it. I was really thankful for the way that Jamie uh, took us into and explored uh, how uh, the authentic and emotional life is so rich as we follow Jesus. Uh, And I was really thankful that, you know, our resident songwriter, poet, musician, Jamie, was the one taking us through uh, such a topic of emotion, uh, and not myself, uh, someone who used to make bricks for a living. Uh, My emotional range tends to sort of sit roughly between happy and hungry. That's kind of about uh, the full limit. Uh, To give you an example of how Jamie and I are a little bit different, um, a few months ago, 
I explained to the staff team the decision we'd sort of come to to, uh, to not plant a, a church in spring like now, uh, but delay till uh, early next year. Uh, I sort of explained all the thinking and the events that had happened, and I thought I explained it pretty well. And then as, uh, after the meeting, Jamie was like, oh man, that, that must have been a, a real emotional journey for you, Cam. What, what was it like? It doesn't happen often to me, but I just went completely blank. Like, emotional journey, like... <laughs> Like, events happened, we made decisions, and like, I, I wasn't that hungry for most of it, if that's, like, if that's what you want to know. Um, I have so much to learn from Jamie, and uh, I also think that might be why Jamie, who uh, put together this series, decided that he would preach last week, and I'd have this week on bureaucracy and building codes. Um, <laughs> events happen, at the end, they eat lamb, is kind of what's happening today. What else do you want to know? No, um... I really hope today that we'll see this is a really helpful part of God's Word for us, uh, but the key to seeing why it's so helpful is to first work out, like, why would we care about this temple being built? It's easy, uh, very easy to see why the Israelites should care about the temple being built. It's the visible reminder that, uh, an assurance actually, that God is with them in their midst, uh, protecting them, uh, blessing them. Uh, the temple is really important in Israel, but, but how about us? Uh, we don't have a physical temple uh, to care this much about, uh, and so why is this important? Uh, if you were here last week, you will remember we actually had this question answered really, really well by, I think, one of Australia's leading theologians. Uh, you, you'll remember the great mover and shaker as Marcel Wiggle uh, came and did our kids' talk last week and basically answered this question. Uh, he explained it really, really well if you were paying attention, and uh, it, was, it was excellent. Uh, Christians, of course, don't have a literal temple building, Um, But rather, God is present on earth, he's here on earth, as his spirit lives in God's people, in us. Uh, His people, his church, are the temple. Uh, God is present in his world through us, the church. And so as we read Ezra, as we learn about what God does and about what his people do, um, as they build our temple, I think as disciples of Jesus, we can learn about, you know, the building of this temple, the building of Jesus' church. And we get to learn about um, how each of us play our part in this incredible project, uh, the most important building project on earth. Um, as I said earlier, um, Ezra 5 starts about 16 years after the foundations were laid to this building. Kind of get the picture that weeds are starting to grow through the cracks after 16 years on an abandoned building site. Um, now, I think this delay tells us a lot about the spiritual state of Israel. Um, to be fair, yes, they have faced opposition. There's been corrupt bureaucrats and their enemies do make them fearful. There's, uh, there's that certainly going on. But it's God's temple. It's God's temple. And just sitting around as a foundation, wasting away, it's kind of an embarrassment, I think. Uh, no one's doing anything, it would seem. Israel have perhaps lost their courage and their priorities seem a little bit out of whack. Uh, it's kind of a real anticlimax from, from last week with a big party at the end of uh, the foundation being laid. I reckon it's a little bit like, well, imagine for a moment that after COVID last year and the sort of the chaos that that was, uh, instead of uh, organising us and leading us as a church back to gather together, imagine instead of doing that, that Matt Lehman thought, ah, oh, let's just give it another six months. It's still a bit, you know, a bit chaotic and it's been pretty hard. Let's just give everyone a break and we'll get going in another six months. Six months pass and then we have to wear masks and Matt's like, oh, this mask is all a bit of a pain. Let's just give it another six months and then uh, we'll get back together. And by the way, how good is it having a free Sunday morning? 
Another six months goes by, and suddenly 16 years just fly by. Uh, imagine that. Our pew Bibles have gone mouldy, uh, not to mention uh, the communion little cups and wafers. I, blood of Christ or not, I wouldn't touch them after more than a year, I think. The kids in our creche have uh, now grown up and have their L plates, but have never been to church. It's a bit ridiculous, isn't it, uh, that kind of scene? But I think that's kind of a sense of what's going on here in Ezra. Uh, they should be doing the work of building God's temple. Uh, it's, it's God's temple. The most glorious, most important, most praiseworthy being in the universe. It's his temple. Uh, I think what they've got is a bit of a spiritual slump. What does it take to get out of a slump like that? 16 years. Uh, how do you get out of that and get going again? Well, again, imagine in our scenario, uh, you know, Matt's at home on a Sunday morning, like the rest of us, sort of you know, forgetting about going to church. Suddenly, out of the blue, there's a knock on Matt's door. It's the prophet Jamie, descendant of Seafang. Um, joke's way funny if you've read Ezra chapter 2, which I encourage you to do. Jamie says, Matt, I have a message for you from God. Matt, son of Bob, of the line of Leman, thus saith the Lord. Get on with it, mate. Pull your finger out. And I'm sure it'd be very elaborate and eloquent, but that's the gist of Jamie's prophetic message. And it's God's word. God's word, as we'll see today, really does move mountains. That's what happens here in Ezra in verses 1 and 2. The prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, we're told, are the ones who really get things moving again after that massive slump. They prophesy. That is, they are speaking God's words into the lives of the people around them and that really sad spiritual situation. The transformation here is just incredible. What is it that they say? Well, actually, thankfully, we do have the teaching of Haggai and Zechariah in the Bible. Um, I want to give us this morning just a very small taste of what these two prophets are on about. Um, And I'm going to oversimplify it greatly, and I'm always conscious of this when we have Old Testament lecturers around. Uh, But... Very briefly, I think Haggai and and Zechariah complement each other really, really well. Um, Haggai is very direct, gets gets right to the point, a bit blunt, a bit more um, stick than carrot, you might say. He's a challenger. Zechariah is kind of the prophet and the dreamer, very elaborate language, very poetic. He's got carrots everywhere. He's a real encourager. Come on, guys, we can do this. And of course, those two things are what we find all through God's words, God's word challenge and encouragement. We need both of those things. So let's, uh, this morning, have a very quick look at Haggai. Um, you can find this on your pew Bibles, I think, nine, page 946. And 946. Uh, there will be some keen verses on the screen behind me as well. Uh, in Haggai chapter 1, uh, we're told what he says to Zerubbabel. Uh, this is from verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Ouch. Uh, I did warn us, Haggai can be a bit blunt. That's very pointed, isn't it? Now, I don't really know what a panelled house is. It sounds like a very nice house, though, doesn't it? Uh, The idea is they've clearly been tipping a lot of their energy, their time, their money into their own homes. uh, And meanwhile, as we said, not lifting a finger or sending a cent uh, for God's house, for for God's glory. 
Now, to be fair, they need houses, they've returned from exile, it's right for them to build and have somewhere to live, and don't forget, they made a really good start, they've got the foundation ready to go, their priorities were in order, but I think what we see here is that priorities do shift sometimes, and I reckon that happens usually without us even realising it. All of us do find from time to time that um, good things can start to distract us and kind of sneak their way up our priority list. There are all kinds of good things that kind of end up getting in the way of things of the kingdom, uh, be it study or career, uh, family life, recreation, uh, houses. Uh, all are great things, great gifts from God, uh, but all those things can sneak their way up our priority list and claim the spot that's rightfully God's. Number one. Um, at our Belong course, Matt's just mentioned, uh, for people who are joining us, especially from other churches, looking to make this church home, we're really upfront about, we want to be a church that keeps God at number one. We want to be encouraging and challenging that God is number one, because, well, He is God. Uh, and so we also try and summarize how the Bible talks about uh, involvement in church life, what you might call temple building work, uh, which involves, for all of us, sacrificial service. That is sort of very temple language, sacrifice service. Uh, those of you who have come through Belong over the years would have heard us talk about uh, time, treasure and talent. Time, treasure, talent. Uh, we encourage all of us to keep growing in the ways that we express uh, our priorities, in the way we use our time, our treasure, you know, money, it starts with a T, uh, and our talent. Uh, the things that we do are to serve and build up others around us. Now, for those who haven't heard all this before, uh, details for Belong are in your leaflet, as we said. Now, with that in mind, uh, for me, this is a really encouraging church to be part of. I think there is such a great commitment to the things of the kingdom in our midst. Um, of course, though, there, there is no upper limit on these things and how generous we can be. We can all keep growing in our generosity uh, and the way we use our time, our treasure, and our talent uh, with God's help and for His glory. And so I think it's probably important for all of us to keep checking in with Haggai from time to time, let him challenge us, uh, and just check that our priorities are not shifting away uh, from kingdom priorities. Uh, that's perhaps a great point of discussion you know, over lunch today or in community groups later in the week. So there's Haggai, our very helpfully blunt friends. Uh, let's uh, quite literally want to flick over the page in your pew Bible to Zechariah. Uh, he's going to fire you up with some real encouragement. Now, as we read uh, this passage, uh, bear in mind, it's not, not just priorities that are the issue. Remember, they're scared. Uh, the enemies are trying to stop this work and threaten them. Uh, they need courage, uh, not just priorities sorted out. So over the page, I'll read from Zechariah chapter 4, and I'm going to start at verse 6. And just put yourself for a moment in Zerubbabel's shoes. Imagine this is a word to you uh, as the leader of this project. I think you'd feel like Superman after hearing this. Zechariah 4. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he'll bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, his hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things, since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. 
that's great, isn't it? There's an assurance from God himself. This project will get completed. It can't fail. And Zerubbabel can literally move mountains, is what he says. He's bulletproof. He has the power of God Almighty on his side. God's word gives us courage as his people to do hard things. Because in his word, as we've seen all through this passage, God is with us as we do this work. He gives us power by his spirit to get on with temple building. And he gives us power and courage to keep our priorities in order. That can be a courageous thing to do. Now, we don't do these things by our own power or might, but by the almighty power of God's spirit. So I think the most amazing thing for me about Ezra chapter 5 is, uh, and why I've spent so long on these first two verses, is the amazing effect that these prophets have. As they speak God's challenging and encouraging words, after 16 years in a spiritual slump, too scared to work, finally, verse 2, they get to it. Uh, The prophets keep supporting them, they keep encouraging, keep challenging, and I reckon that's a great model of church life. Uh, the Word of God being spoken and uh, at the centre of the building project, encouraging that work, challenging us to keep going. Uh, God, by His Word, drives us forward as His people in kingdom work together. Now, not only do they get to work and have their priorities now uh, in order, they have courage now. Um, we see verse 3, Tataniah, the governor of the whole region, um, he wants to know, firstly, do you have building approval? And, you know, that's his job, fair enough. But then verse 4, he kind of ominously takes down their names. Sorry, we're back in chapter 5 of Ezra, by the way, sorry. Uh, Ezra chapter 5, verse 4, he takes down their names for those who are working on the building project, just in case they're doing the wrong thing. But the builders just keep going. Uh, They just keep going, and that's really, really gutsy. Uh, The Persians are not people to trifle with, uh, and if your name is on that list, that could end very badly for you personally. Uh, Unlike the wonderful people at the Mitcham Council, uh, the Persian Empire were pretty good at executing people in all kinds of creative ways. Um, Having your name on a list in their hands is not a a comfortable thought, I don't think. So imagine uh, for us, if coming to church meant your name might end up on a list uh, in the hands of very powerful and very dangerous people. If your name's on that list, do you still come to church? This is, of course, a reality that faces Christians all around the world. Uh, to know that to identify with Jesus is to have your name on such a list. And so may God grant us that kind of courage should we ever need it. Well, I guess more to the point, may God grant us courage to live lives every day as his people. And I should add at this point that um, if we do find ourselves in a spiritual slump, because we all do at times to time, from time to time, Um, I think this passage reminds us of just how kind God is uh, as He gives us the resources uh, that we need. He gives us His Word, and He gives us His people around us, uh, people like Haggai and Zechariah. He gives us uh, His people to speak His Word into our life. Um, I know that getting out of a spiritual slump isn't as simple as just reading my Bible more. Uh, There's no silver bullets often. But Haggai's and Zacharias are all around us, challenging us, encouraging us, especially in something like a community group. God has given us all the resources. It's a great blessing to help us through those really difficult spiritual times. Well, as we get to verse 6 here in Ezra chapter 5, we really get to the heart of that very exciting building approval saga. 
Uh, so strap yourselves in, it gets, gets a bit exciting from here. Because what we're doing is picking up an ancient email thread, basically. Uh, we've got Tat and I, uh, who's writing to King Darius. And just a quick note, King Darius is the most powerful man in the world ever at this point. Uh, fascinating guy, you could look it up on Wikipedia later. Amazing stuff. Um, so he's writing to the most powerful man ever, and Tatanai is doing the right thing as a diligent civil servant. And the rest of chapter 5 is basically his letter that he sends. Tatanai says, I found these people building a temple in Jerusalem. They say old King Cyrus says they could do it. Uh, it seems to be a big deal to them. I just thought I'd check with you, see if it's okay, and uh, just check the records for me, please. Let me know what to do. By the way, I've got their names just in case... Uh, we need to do something more sinister. What a snitch. Um, it's true, uh, by the way, that King Cyrus did give permission. Uh, it's quite right. The question now is, will an ancient empire, two and a half thousand years before digital records, will they have the right file and be able to find it in their administration building? If our modern councils are anything to go by, I'm not optimistic uh, with that question. But, in God's great kindness, what do we find? At the start of chapter 6, Darius orders, all right, go look, search the archive, see what we can find. And sure enough, they find it. Yes, Cyrus did give permission, and thankfully he recorded it. Everything's okay. But then you get to verse 8 and 9 of chapter 6 and have the incredible twist in the whole saga. This is extraordinary. We find out here that Tatanai's office has to pay for the whole project. It's government-sponsored now. Not only the building, but they have to pay for all the sacrifices anyone wants to make. Isn't that extraordinary? I don't think Tat and I was expecting that outcome, uh, but it teaches us the all-important lesson this morning. Snitches get stitches. <laughs> uh, just to make sure that Tat and I is clear on this, King Darius shows us how effective he is as a leader. You don't get to be the king of Persia without getting things done. So chapter, 11, uh, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 11, Darius says, Furthermore, I decree, if anyone defies this edict, you know, to help the building of the temple, a beam is to be pulled from their house, and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. Uh, there you go, Darius gets things done. If you want civil servants getting a good job, uh, the threat of impalement seems to work, because, verse 13, Tadanai and his mates were very diligent in carrying out Darius's wishes, not surprisingly. Which leads me to a sentence I'm not sure has ever been uttered with sincerity before. Uh, but here we go. Thank God for bureaucracy. Uh, careful records, diligent public servants, clear communication, effective leadership. These have been a great blessing to God's people here in Ezra, but all through church history in different ways. Uh, to be fair to us, uh, as a church, we have had some troubles in the past with bureaucracy, uh, but overall, we can be extraordinarily thankful for the freedom we have to meet like this, uh, for venues like Tonsley opening up to us. Uh, God has been very kind in his provision through our local uh, elected members. Well, in uh, verses 14 onwards in chapter 6, we get to this momentous occasion. Finally, uh, Zerubbabel completes the temple. Zechariah was right. Uh, it's taken about four years, I think. And verse 14 is a really helpful verse because it helps us tease out uh, a very interesting thing. Who is responsible for completing the building? Who gets the credit? It's interesting because it's kind of everyone. If you look through verse 14 and onwards... 
Um, we see that God commanded it. He gets all the credit, of course, but the prophets are responsible, aren't they? And so are the kings of Persia. They get credit. But what we see as well, and what I want to pick up for a moment, is it's the diligence of God's people that's kind of on show here. Uh, we've seen the word diligence a number of times in these chapters. It's an unusual word uh, to see in Scripture, I think. It doesn't come up that much, but uh, uh, verse 8 of chapter 5, we saw their work is being carried on with diligence. The word doesn't get used much, but we see that concept all through Scripture, diligence. It's careful, it's intentional, it's persistence, and diligence is attentive. And so as I think about my own discipleship, I've been really struck by this word uh, this week, because I think we should want to be diligent disciples, carefully attending to our lives with Jesus. After all, Jesus tells the parable of uh, the servants who look after their, their, their master's money, Jesus doesn't use the word diligence, but as he explains that the servant who worked hard, he invested carefully, uh, Jesus explains to to that servant, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, That servant, I think, was diligent in his faithfulness, just like Zerubbabel is being commended for in these chapters. So I've been thinking a lot about diligence, and I find it quite challenging. Um, I think first of my own prayer life, I think I'd like to be able to say I'm a diligent prayer, uh, but I have a long way to go. And in the context then of not just the personal, but in our our corporate life together, what does diligence look like in this project of building a temple, building God's temple? What does diligence look like? Well, a great example that comes to mind is on a Sunday morning just like this, I think we have 11 different teams running every week uh, to make things work. We have teams who are organising themselves, swapping with each other when they're away, communicating, planning ahead, preparing, each doing their part with attentiveness persistence. Um, I really think our teams are a great example of diligence and faithfulness in this temple building project. Uh, It's something we've grown in heaps as a church over the last few years. It's really encouraging. Um, I think diligence especially looks like paying careful attention to the affairs of our church family, uh, to know what's going on so that we know how to make our best contribution and, of course, to pray diligently. Uh, So in a sermon about bureaucracy, I don't think I'll make this application point ever again, but it feels appropriate, weirdly, uh, to encourage us today to read our weekly emails from church. Um, As a staff team, we we know it's just another email and we don't pin all our hopes on them being read, but we do hope they inform uh, for the diligent building of our project project together. Uh, Matt's already given this announcement, and I thought, oh, I could take it out of the sermon, because I was going to also talk about this. I thought, no, I'm going to leave this in, because it is such an important part of our diligent life together. Uh, We've run those nights already about uh, informing everyone about the biggest change in our church history so far. We've encouraged everyone to come. Uh, We've done as much as we can, I think, as a staff team, uh, to encourage all to get along and find out what's happening. I know many of you are planning on coming this afternoon, and uh, they've been really encouraging so far, so I'm looking forward to this afternoon with those who are coming. Uh, It's just that, as I wrote this on Friday, um, only 61 of 140 households have come along so far. 61 of 140 households. So I'm not worried at this point, and as Matt said, uh, Tonsley, we'll be fine, whatever um, sort of happens, but I'm just a little bit nervous Uh, There's a new emotion for me. A little bit nervous uh, about um, perhaps less than half our church um, having not heard some really crucial things about what we need to know about our life together. 
and you'll get to hear about Matt's irrational fear of mathematics. So it's not to be missed. Uh, there's room for all. The details are in your leaflet. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to get along. Well, as we uh, get to the end of chapter 6, um, it, it's a really strange part of the Bible. There's something odd about it all. Uh, it all looks really good, and it is all really good as you finish this chapter, but in a something's not quite right kind of way. I'll show you what I mean as we have a look at uh, those final verses from about verse 16 onwards. Um, they finish the temple building. It's amazing. Uh, the people of Israel are all united in celebration. The whole country is now seemingly out of their spiritual slump. They're celebrating with joy. They're sacrificing for their sins. They set everything up according to the law of Moses. It's been so, so long since you could describe Israel as united in celebration, using the temple properly, following the law of Moses. It has been generations since God's people were living faithfully like this to him. And then verse 19, they, they get to celebrate the Passover again in their homeland, and they celebrate it as they should. They eat lamb in the end. Verse 21, uh, we even get a glimpse of the other nations being blessed by Israel. People join in with these celebrations. Um, Israel here are a blessing to the nations. It's been a long-promised thing, but not ever realized this is a glimpse, of, it's a wonderful, wonderful picture in Israel's history. But something's not quite right. There are some things lurking beneath the surface. Uh, when Israel first built the tabernacle, uh, the precursor to the temple, at the end of Exodus, God's presence and his glory famously filled the tabernacle. No one could go near it because his presence was too overwhelming. Wind the clock forward, and when King Solomon built the first temple and dedicated it in one kings, God's presence and glory famously filled the whole temple. No one could go near it. His presence was too overwhelming. But what about in Ezra? It doesn't mention that. That pattern is broken of God's overwhelming presence as the temple is dedicated. So we ask, well, is God really there? Well, maybe, but it's just not obvious to anyone. And I'm pretty sure that if we're diligent readers of Scripture, we should be a bit unsettled at this point. Something's changed, and it doesn't look good. On top of that, we have verse 22 of chapter 6, and it's written in the positive, and it's a really good thing. They're celebrating that God had changed the mind of the king of Persia to make this all possible. It's a good thing, they're celebrating. The problem is, the king of Persia, why should they have to care about him at all? Why should a foreign king be calling the shots, not the king of Israel? This is a reminder that all is not well. Israel do not have a king of the line of David sitting on the throne as been promised. Someone leading them in their service and faithfulness to God. It's a bit unsettling. It's all a bit off. Kind of like this whole sermon is a bit off, if I were to leave it here today. Uh, let me just give you an example, and I hope some of you have been a bit, uh, yeah, a bit wondering about where this is going to finish with what I've said. Let me summarize what I've said. We need to get our priorities sorted out, we need to be courageous, we need to be diligent, and you need to read your weekly emails. Hopefully a sermon just like that raises alarm bells for diligent sermon listeners. That's basically just life advice, isn't it? That's good things to do. It's helpful for us in our discipleship to aspire to those things. They're good things, but I haven't proclaimed the good news, have I? And perhaps just as alarmingly, it puts us at the centre. If we're diligent, if we're, uh, if we're courageous, we'll be able to do this. That's not at all the picture we should be coming away from, uh, from Ezra 5. But I think as we finish this chapter, as we've seen their great courage and their persistence and their diligence and their priorities being in order, 
I think the uneasy feeling we get as diligent readers of scriptures, it just makes us wonder that it's somehow not, their, their effort is somehow not enough, isn't it? The big problem, after all, the whole reason they need to rebuild this temple and why there's no king there is that they have that long history of failing as God's people to be faithful. Time and time again, their sin has let them down. And just because this particular generation is courageous and get their act together, well, uh, just like we hold ourselves up to these heroes of Ezra and feel a bit hopeless, really, like our own priorities and diligence, uh, yeah, it fails in comparison, doesn't it? And so we think of the future generations, what, what hope do they have, especially without a king? Now that's why, of course, uh, we can be so, and should be, so thankful for Jesus. He's God's king. And so he's our king leading us. He leads by example. Uh, his priority is not his own will, but the will of his father. His courage and his diligence leads him to the cross. And on the cross, as our true Passover lamb, his, his blood covers us for the times we are faithless, when we've lacked in courage, when we haven't been diligent in our discipleship, and when our priorities have been all out of whack. We can go to Jesus as our Passover lamb for forgiveness for our faithlessness. And so we can be so thankful uh, that it's Jesus who, on the cross, gives us access to his presence in our lives by his Spirit. God's real presence, helping us as disciples to grow in our faithfulness to our Father. I think today we can also be exceptionally thankful that it's Jesus who says he will build his church, his temple. It's him that's doing this work. And so we can, with great joy, serve him as he does that work through us, following his courageous lead, applying ourselves with joyful diligence to the work he sets before us. And so would you join me as I pray, thanking God for these things and asking for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we really have uh, so much to be thankful for. Uh, for the encouragement we have in Ezra that you will bring yourself glory through the building of your temple. You can even uh, use bureaucrats to achieve your purposes. We thank you that uh, through your word you powerfully transform communities and lives. We thank you most of all for sending your son as our king and as our Passover lamb. We thank you for your spirit powerfully at work in our lives, growing us in our courage and diligence and helping us keep our prioritise your glory and not our own. So help us, we pray, to grow together as your people in these ways and to bring you great glory in our world. Amen.